Chapter 29, 1 Samuel. David, um, you know, he's been pursued by Saul. He's had all these things going on. He's essentially working for uh, Achish. We did a whole topical study Saturday on David and his relationship with the Philistine lord Achish. And we covered that. So now David has fled from Saul. King Saul, his father-in-law, who's pursuing him, trying to kill him. He's going crazy. He's been rejected by the Lord. David is being refined, going through trials and tribulations. He's being refined by the Lord. And it's all, it's like a panoramic, uh, it's like just a a huge panoramic event. And it's all moving toward uh, an apex right now. And and things are about to change profoundly as David is, it's almost time for him to be king. And these last three chapters of 1 Samuel are very distinct in the characters and what they wrap up and conclude to move us toward the next book, 2 Samuel, where David moves toward becoming the great king that he will be. So chapter 29, verse 1, David is with the Philistines. He's with Achish, and we read this. Then the Philistines gathered together all their armies at Aphek, and the Israelites encamped by a fountain which is in Jezreel. And the lords of the Philistines passed in review by hundreds and by thousands. But David and his men passed in review at the rear with Achish. Then the princes of the Philistines said, what are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the princes of the Philistines, is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me these days or these years? And to this day, I found no fault in him since he defected to me. But the princes of the Philistines were angry with him. So the princes of the Philistines said to him, make this fellow return that he may go back to the place which you have appointed for him, and do not let him go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become our adversary. For with what could he reconcile himself to his master, if not with the heads of these men? Is this not David of whom they sang to one another in the dances, saying, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands? Then Achish called David and said to him, Surely, as the Lord lives, and that gets our attention, by the way, that Achish is saying, as the Lord lives, as uh, Jehovah lives, you have been upright, and you're going out and you're coming in with me, and this army is good in my sight. For to this day I have found no evil in you since the day you're coming to me. Nevertheless, the lords do not favor you. Therefore, return now and go in peace that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. So David said to Achish, but what, but what have I done? And to this day, what have you found in your servant as long as I've been with you, that I may not go out and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? Then Achish answered and said to David, I know that you are good in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the princes of the Philistines have said, you shall not go up with us to the battle. Now, therefore, rise early in the morning with your master's servants who have come with you. And as soon as you are up early in the morning and have light, depart. So David and his men rose early to depart in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. And the Philistines went up to Jezreel. Here in chapter 29, we're moving toward that battle where Saul, the great King Saul, is going to die. He's going to be killed along with his sons. In fact, it's the final chapter of this book. He had gone to the witch at Endor. She called for Samuel and that whole story that we saw last week, and it was pronounced it's going to go this way, and this is the way it is. And that's Saul's on the clock. He's, he's had his last meal. He's going into a battle. He knows that he's going to lose. In fact, the defeat of Saul that's coming up with these Philistine lords will be one of the greater defeats of Israel in, in uh, conflict that you read about in the Bible. It's very profound, right? He's their first king. He's going to lead this army, and they're going to get beat by the Philistines. And all the house of Saul, essentially, is going to die in this battle. And these Philistines, they've come into the land. Now, we already know the Philistines had garrisons throughout Israel. They were stationed throughout the land. They had their places. They were occupying. They're like an occupying force. It's not hard to picture occupying forces. We've seen them in the last 20 years for sure, right? So they're an occupying force, and they're there. And the Israelites are under this oppression. Saul should be fighting the Philistines. He's been chasing David for the last 5, 10 years, however long it's been. It's all coming to a head. The worst thing that could happen here is for David, who's fled the promised land as an anointed future king of Israel. The worst thing that could have happened is for David to have gone out with the Philistines against Saul. Because as it is, David already cut the robe of Saul and felt bad about it, his own conscience, right? We read that story. As it is, he already grabbed the spear of Saul, of all the prizes you could have, the spear that Saul threw at him, Saul's flashpoint of his strength, and he gave it back to him and begged Saul to let him be and not keep pursuing him. 
So what a tragedy it would have been for David had taken his 600 mighty men and actually found himself in combat at this point with Saul and his men. He would have been in the very place he's been trying to avoid for the last decade or so. We have to remember with David, because you get a lot of opinions of this chapter by a lot of good men and women who've served the Lord in the last couple thousand years. There's a lot of opinions on this story of David. But one thing we have to remember this story of David, he's a desperate man. We all, the longer you live, the more you'll know what it's like to feel desperate. Desperate to pay your bills. Desperate over sickness. Desperate in frustration with the medical field and doctors and things you're going through. There's a lot of things that make you feel desperate. And, and David has been desperate for a long time. And he's holding on to the promises of God, but it hasn't really come to pass. And it's, it's been a tough... From the time he turned 20 to the time he's moving toward 30, it's been a tough go for him in life. It's been a really tough run for him. And how he ended up... So he was essentially fired by his boss, his father-in-law, King Saul, who's trying to kill him. He now works for the enemies, Achish, the Philistine warlord, who thinks he could be a good chief guardian, when David, in fact, is going to be one of the greatest kings in human history. And this is what it comes down to. He's going to go out to this battle. He's just doing the best he knows what to do. You ever felt like that? Like, sometimes you're like, I don't, I'm not sure if this is the right thing. Like, sometimes you're just like, I just don't even know, but I'm just doing the best I can right now in these circumstances, and I'm just taking the next step forward. I'm going to do the next thing that seems to be the right thing as best I can discern. I'm just, this is the best I can do. This is who I am. I'm David. This is my staff, 600 men. These are the guys I'm with. I can't go, I, I can't go back to Israel. My parents live in Moab. I don't know what to tell you. I'm doing the best I can. And now he's in Israel, but he's not representing the armies of Israel where he's already defeated Philistines in the past. He's with Achish and his people. He's not even the commander of Achish's uh, military unit. He's just like a, a platoon in Achish's military unit. So often in war, you know, you have hybrids. Even in the most recent Russian-Ukrainian conflict, all kinds of uh, European and Western mercenaries have gone into Ukraine, and they've, you know, they've taken some on the chin for sure. And they've They've been there. There's, there are foreign mercenary military people, including former U.S. military people, that have been in Ukraine. And this is very common. I mean, when Washington crossed the Delaware, he didn't defeat British. He defeated Germans, the Hessians. The famous story of Washington crossing the Delaware, if you didn't know that. It's not unusual. So it's not unusual about foreigners in your army supplementing your army in a campaign like this. But if they're... If they're of the same ethnicity as the people you're going to attack, then you might, be, you might think about that one for a little bit. And if they sing songs about how good this guy was defeating your people previously, who he's now with, then you might think about that one as well. You can see the story here. It's, it's, got, a lot of, it's got a lot of moving parts to it. But here's the biggest moving part of them all. The Lord is in control. Because David's just like all of us, like sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, just trying to do the best he can to figure out what the next thing is with the Lord. And aren't you glad that the Lord intervenes? See, we talk a lot about having God's favor, like Joseph in the Old Testament, favor with his dad, favor with Potiphar, favor in the, with the prison guard, favor with Pharaoh. A lot of times we read in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, about finding favor, finding favor. In one of Joel Osteen's books, he had a whole, one of his whole thematical things is about finding favor and makes it a formula, which I completely disagree with. But if you have favor, you have favor from the Lord. And if you don't, you don't. I don't need a formula to find favor with God. Either God gives you favor with the boss or he doesn't. And either God gives you favor with the situation or he doesn't. There's no formula to it. Either, either God's going to bless you in that situation because he's a blessing God, or he's going to close that door on you. And Jesus said in Revelation uh, chapters 2 and 3, chapter 3, he said he, that he opens a door that no man can close, the Church of Philadelphia, and closes a door that no man can open. We like open doors because we want to know where we're supposed to go, but really what we don't like is no, but often no is, is getting us closer to what yes is. And as you get older, you realize you appreciate God closes doors. And this is God closing a door. So the, our application on this chapter is very simple. Let God close the doors he's closing. If you've done everything you can to get that house and you can't get that house, let him close the door. If you've done everything you can to get into that university and you can't get into that university, let him close that door. And if you've done everything you can to get that job and they don't give you the job, let it go. Let him close that door. We are trusting in Jesus Christ if you're a follower of Christ tonight. 
We're trusting him to raise us from the grave. We're, we're trusting him to put this mortal in immortality, this corruptible incorruptibility. We're trusting him, him to bring every promise that he's made to us through the cross, the empty tomb, the day of Pentecost, and the coming kingdom, yes and amen, to do that. And since he knows the hairs on our head, we give an account for every word we've ever spoken, not just the word, but the motives of it. We can be sure we can trust him with closing and opening doors. And by the way, in 60 years of the human experience, and those that are older with me will agree for the younger people, his no is louder than yes. His no is louder than yes. Yes is more like Marco Polo. Marco Polo in the pool, like when you're a kid. Marco Polo. That, that's yes. No is like someone just whacking you in the face. You know, like, no, no the, the Lord's no is, I have found, at least for me personally, and speaking with other people, that no tends to be a lot louder than yes. Yes is the frequency like sonar, where you're just like, you got to keep taking steps of faith. But no, God can do you a favor and just wham, slam that door. David has prepared 600 men to be good soldiers. They've marched, they've practiced, they've done everything like colonials, you know, like George Washington's Continental Army, you know, like, mm, 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 you know, they're ready to go. But they've got the wrong, they're, they're, they're not called, called to raise their hand and end up in battle looking at Saul and his mighty men. Can you imagine David and Jonathan looking at each other across the battlefield? The best of friends, the two greatest men of faith in that generation look at each other like, that's like the Civil War in America. That's like Stonewall Jackson and Lee and those guys and all their buddies from Annapolis and West Point on the other side of Fredericksburg. Now, it's bad enough it happened in American history. We definitely don't need it to happen in Jewish history and Israel history. Praise the Lord for no. Just, just no, K-N-O-W, that when God says no, he's doing you a favor. Let him close doors. This was not his battle. Hey, David and his 600 mighty men, oh, they got a battle. The enemy, their enemies are not the Israelites. Their enemies are the Amalekites. You need to know who you're supposed to fight and who you're not supposed to fight. You need to know who the enemy is. And by the way, that's why I tend to also, like the older I get, the less I want to attack other people in ministry. And when I see people who all they do is attack, 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 I'm like, Be careful. Be careful. Be careful. Because in the measure that you're attacking other people, you're going to be attacked. Or as Pastor Chuck Smith used to say, the older you get, the less denominational you should be. Not in the sense of compromising faith and essentials, but recognizing the body of Christ is bigger than our limited scope that we think it is when we're 30 years of age. Amen? Don't attack the wrong people and let God say no. Now we read on in chapter 30. Now, it happened when David and his men came to Ziglag, that was the village that the Philistines had given him, that the Amalekites had invaded the south, and Ziglag attacked Ziglag and burned it with fire, and had taken captive the women and those who were there, from small to great. They did not kill anyone, but carried them away and went their way. So David and his men came to the city, and there it was burned with fire, with their wives and their sons, their daughters had been taken captive. Then David and the people with him lifted up their voices and wept until they had no more power to weep. And David's two wives, Ahinom, the Jezreelite, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite, had been taken captive. Now David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because the soul of all the people were grieved, every man for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. This has to be the absolute low moment. Some of you, when you have gone through difficulties and things, life, and really difficulties and trials and tribulations can vary for people. Because God, the Bible tells us God never gives us more than we can handle. So you might have a, a trial that's kind of for a season, it's this difficult. Zero to ten, like the doctor. Your pain level is zero to ten. Is it a seven or a three, right? But some people, you know, they can, they can take a lot of hard things, and the Lord has bigger and better things for them, like David, for ten years, and he's refining them, so they go through a lot. Some people, they, they flip out pretty quick when things don't go right, and we have to get past that so God can mature us and grow us so we don't 
stop growing. Like trials and tribulations were finest. They're good for our faith. They make us stronger who we're meant to be as men and women in the faith. But there's that saying that we like to say, this too shall pass. But sometimes you feel like, what more can go wrong? You ever said that? Like, really? Like, really? Like, what more could possibly go wrong? And then here comes the email. Here comes the adult child knocking on the door. Here comes the situation. Here's the call from the school. Or, hey, boss wants to see you. (laughs) Bring it on. What more can go wrong? Right? It's like one of those things. It's, it's just the way it is sometimes. What can you do? But everything does have a bottom-out point. And we say this, that the highest mountaintop you go with Jesus, he'll be higher in your greatest moment. And the lowest moment you ever have in the human experience, Jesus goes lower. Because in Psalm 139, David said, where can I go from your spirit? If I go to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the grave, you're there. Anywhere I go, east, west, north, south, you're beyond those parameters. But there are points that are low points. Like Job, when he lost everything in the book of Job, and his wife's just like, just curse God and die. And it's like, in one day, he lost his children, he lost his wealth, all of it was taken in one day. But he just said, like, naked I came from the womb, naked I'll return. The Lord has given, the Lord has taken, blessed be the name of the Lord. But that was the low point. And then he had the boils, which is actually a lower point. He had physical discomfort. And then he has bad friends, who are supposed to be his good friends. So that's probably the lowest point. And then God reproves him, commends him, restores him twofold, doublefold, what he ever had. The book of Job is really watching a man reduced to dust. And we can say a woman because the principle would apply to women, reduced to dust, to nothingness before the living God, God of wonders beyond our galaxy, at the absolute breaking point where you've lost everything. And then you trust in the Lord to bring you back. David, at this moment, it's just... In relationships, his wife, that was Saul's daughter, has been taken from him and given to another man. He never asked to divorce his wife. We have a reason to believe he loved his wife. She's married another man. His father-in-law is separated from his wife. He has two other wives for different reasons, and who can understand all that, and now he doesn't have them. His men that were in debt, in distress, and discontented, remember those guys? They're, they're, they're finally making progress. They were in military alignment the day before. They were marching, ready to go to war. They looked so good. They're in their spiffy new uniforms with their gleaning swords that the Philistines gave them. Because remember, the Israelites didn't have the iron weapons, but the Philistines did. They were ready to go. There were 30 mighty men that were the greatest of men in those 600 men. But on this day, none of them looked like mighty men. No one's slaying giants from Moab on this day. They all want to slay David. You talk about an employee strike when everyone goes on on strike and they refuse to show up for work. All of it. The grief and the heartache that David would have that moment. The sense of, like Job, when he lost everything, just being so alone. You, you can't serve two masters. So of the two wives, one of them obviously was his wife. Whoever that woman was that had his love, his friendship, his romance, he's lost her yet again. Yet again, another, the woman he loves has been taken from him. He's been fired from the job that he didn't want in the first place. He's been fired again. And now all of his employees that he's been trying to shape to be men and women who trust in the Lord, he's been telling them, love your wives, take care of your wives, love your kids, serve the Lord. Deuteronomy 6, tell your kids about the Lord when you wake up, even when we're fleeing in the wilderness of Judea. Tell your children about the Lord, even when we're hanging out with the Philistines and Achish and he's dumbing us down. Tell them about the Lord. And suddenly here he is on this day, after this previous day, his house is burned down. He's lost his house. He's lost his his house. He's lost all of his wealth. He's lost his relationships. 
everything. This moment, he's naked and raw and bare before the Lord. The man with a heart after God. And this is his lowest point. He'll do some foolish things after this when he gets older. And his heart will be broken by Absalom and others. But this was that absolute lowest point. And yet, what does he do? Because see, some people at this point, you know what they do? They take their life. You know, my great-grandfather took his life. My grandfather, Bud Ottman, is my mom's dad. Bud Ottman, he's a good man. Worked hard his whole life. Worked in Cleveland. Grew up during the Depression working multiple jobs in Cleveland. Ice blocks from the train. Hard-working man. He used to spank me. I was so naughty. I was the worst. He'd make me sit in a chair for 15 minutes, which was the absolute worst thing you could do to Joy Brand when he was six years old. Uh, yeah, that was the worst. Ants in the pants, right? I'd make Judah look calm, if you know Judah Frisbee, okay? And, and I, I relate to Judah Frisbee. I'm like, that's me. That's me. That's me. That's me. My mom's like, Joe, that's you, you know? And she's speaking from heaven. But Bud's dad was a semi-pro baseball player. And he was a successful businessman in Pittsburgh in 1907. And one day he went to work and put a gun to his head and took his life in his office in the upstairs. That's what my great-grandfather did. And my grandfather, Bud, my mom's dad, and the mom, they eventually migrated to Cleveland. This is during the Rust Belt, no, excuse me, the Iron Belt, before it was the Rust Belt. All the Great Lakes and the Iron Pellets coming down, iron ore from Duluth and all the car industry in Michigan, all the Great Lakes, Lincoln. And he fought, they followed work. And so my, my grandfather grew up in Cleveland, but he moved to Cleveland from Pittsburgh after his father took his life at work with a gun to the head. More people have taken their life in the last two years than in their time probably in human history because it's just been a breaking point for so many people. And I want to tell you, as a pastor, I've had to be there when people have taken their life. We had a funeral this year for a man that I love. There's a man that used to go to this church. When we were outdoors, he was at our services. He took his life just four months ago. I'm still, I still can't believe it. Like, I literally was driving in Huntington a week ago, and I thought, I cannot believe that he's gone. And he took his life. You know, like when you have those after, you know, like when you're in a crisis and then it kind of cools off a little bit and you reflect back on it. I'm like, I can't, I can't, I just can't believe he took his life. I don't put it on me like, oh, I should have said something when I was out in the courtyard there two years ago teaching Leviticus. If I just said something more, if I'd done the phone call or done this, he wouldn't have taken it. I don't, I don't, you can't put that on me. But still, In our lowest moment, it's not time to check out. It's time to press in. And I don't understand mental health, so I'm not judging mental problems, but that's the buzzword these days anyways. I tried to take my life a long time ago, and I'm grateful I didn't. It's always too soon to quit, and it's definitely always too soon to quit your life. They used to bring people to me at Big Calvary for, uh, who were, like, suicidal or whatever. And, you know, I had a, like, Joey Brand, you, those of you know me, know me, so you can get this one. I'd be like, why are you going to take your life? God's going to take it soon enough. You're like, what? I'm like, yeah. Your life's a vapor. God's going to take your life soon enough. Don't take it. He's going to take it. Just hang in there. He's going to take it from you. would be like, what kind, of, what kind of counseling is this? What kind of church is this? <laughs> for real. The Old Testament and the New Testament tell us life is a vapor. No one needs to take their life. It'll be taken from you soon enough. And the days are fashioned for us before we yet live them. And his thoughts for us are more than the sands of the sea. Again, Psalm 139. His thoughts for us are good thoughts, a future and hope. God's thoughts for us are a future and hope. Now, that Jeremiah 29, 11 text was written by Jeremiah the prophet but through, through the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet, to the captives in Babylon in their worst day when they had lost everything and they're captives in a foreign land. And God says, listen, you young people, because they're telling you it's the end of the world in Babylon, you Gen X and Z and the next generation and all that, millennials. And God wrote, wrote them a personal note through Jeremiah. He said, listen, let me tell you something. My people always have a future and hope. My thoughts for you are not evil. 
but a future in hope. And that's why I cannot stand Debbie Downer and uh, Danny Doomsday. Because we're all still here. And we're here till the Lord says it's done. So it's not for me to, for, it's not for me to say, it's all done. There's no hope. No, there's always hope. Because my thoughts for you, God says, are to give you a future and a hope, not of evil. Thoughts of peace. Now, it goes on to say that if you'll seek me and do the right thing, then things are going to get good for you personally, whether it goes bad in Babylon or not. But the goodness of the Lord, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, has outlasted the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, Alexander the Great, the Seleucid Empire, the Romans, and everybody else has come along since then. So we got to be reminded that when the going gets tough, the broken press into the Lord. Paul, in his breaking point there in 2 Corinthians, said this, I have found that when I'm weak, then I'm strong. David is completely broken. And on top of everything else I said, it's going on from right here. His life is being threatened by his employees. It's not just a strikeout in front of the, you know, Boeing or something in the 70s. These are armed, these are men you train to fight war and they want to stone you. That's what the text tells us. He strengthened himself in the Lord. This text reminds us tonight, body of Christ, of the profound statement, the most basic statement, David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And on the darkest of days, on the greatest of days, on the mountaintop and in the deepest valley, we strengthen ourselves in the Lord. And anything that shifts our confidence from self-sufficiency and self-strength to humility and Christ-dependent strength is a good thing. It may not seem like a good thing, but that our confidence is in the Lord and our hope is in the Lord is the best place to be. It's like Jacob when, he, when Esau was coming for him and he had the plans to subdivide all of his assets and wealth and he's going to do this and he's going to survive his brother coming for him. But in the end, what's he doing? He's wrestling man on man with the angel of the Lord. Is that what we all come down to? Just wrestling man on man with the angel of the Lord. That's what it comes down to. Jacob, Job, David, Women in the Bible, men in the Bible, women of faith, men of faith. We strengthen ourselves in the Lord. And when you say, I, I, can't, I can't take another thing that happens, you know what you need to say? You don't say, this is the end. You just say, well, Lord, I guess I can't take another thing. Right? <laughs> We've all been there. And if you haven't been there, don't worry. If you live to be 80, you certainly will be. We read on in verse 7. Then David said to Abathar the priest, Ahimelech's son. Now remember, Ahimelech was the one, the priest that was killed with all that, the whole thing with David and all that in the showbread. So David says to Abathar the priest, Ahimelech's son, please bring the ephod here to me. And Abathar brought the ephod to David. So David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue this troop? Shall I overtake them? And he answered, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake them. Without fail, recover all. So and without fail, recover all. So David goes from strengthening himself in the Lord. Now, I, we don't, like, when you say, okay, how do you strengthen yourself in the Lord? Well, you, you still your mind, you pray, you get away, you gather your thoughts, you remind yourself that God's on the throne, and you just give it to the Lord, like Hannah in chapter 1 of 1 Samuel. You just got to pour out your heart to the Lord and give it to the Lord. Then when you kind of wipe your tears, because it says they wept beyond measure till they had no more tears, then you say, all right, I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to read a bunch of Psalms right now. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read a bunch of Psalms. I'm going to read the book of Proverbs. I'm going to read the Gospel of John right now. Like how much? Like the whole book right now. That's what I'm going to do. You ever done something like that? It's a wonderful thing to do. You got to press. Because when you strengthen yourself in the Lord, you're going to strengthen yourself in his word. Because faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Right. So that's how you can be built up. So he's poured out his heart to the Lord. All right, bring me the ephod. Bring me the, the robe. Now, this is hard for us to kind of relate to. But again, when you study European history, when all these people go to war with each other for centuries, the 
the Lutherans against the Catholics and the Eastern Orthodox against the Russian Orthodox people, they all had their shrines. And if you even study like uh, Asian cultures, they had their shrines. Everyone has a little lucky thing for war. You know, like the, the Russians particularly used to bring out all the icons. So like when they go to battle during the dawn of all the czars, they'd, they'd bring the icons, like the Russian Orthodox icons out before the battle and they'd kiss the icons and do all that kind of stuff. And, you know, they, they would do that. And when, they, when, when they're facing Napoleon's ar- ar- army, they're, they're like, they got, they got the icons. Kind of like the Ark of the Covenant. We like things we can see. I shared this recently when I had hard times when I really didn't know the Lord but I knew about the Lord I would go to the Catholic Church by myself I would go to St. Francis and I'd pray in the sanctuary there by myself at Vista and I'd do holy water I did it all and um, I buried my mom there just a couple years ago and as I mentioned recently some of you were at my mom's memorial My mom has a book for 75 years of St. Francis history. It's like, like eight years ago, they had their 75th anniversary and they had pictures of all the congregants. And my mom's in that book. I gave away almost every book I have recently. I did not give that away. I just can't give it away. That's my mom at her church. Do I greet the Catholics? No. Did I learn good things from the Catholics growing up? Yes, that Jesus is the Son of God and he rose from the grave. And it did me well for all the... Foolish things I did in the folly of my youth. And as I looked at that book, I think, like, does it make the cut or not? I was like, well, it's going to make the cut. Because do I tear mom's page? Okay, so I've been all kinds of books as a pro surfer. I wish I still had them, but you know what I did? I tore my page out. <laughs> I'm in the book. There's my page. I don't want the whole book. These books are heavy. I've, you moved 18 times with kids, you know? Like, I, these books are heavy. Books are heavy. They're hard to move. I just, this is me in the book. I tore out the page, the cover of the book, stapled them together, and I put it in a file. But I'm not going to do that to my mom. It just means too much. You know, my mom's memorial, so many people came up to me and told me great stories about my mom, how she was there for them and all these things. And some of those people are in that book, how she helped out with the food pantry and this thing and that thing, and how she went a whole day of her life to go visit someone that was sick in Marietta, whatever, and all these stories. I'm not going to throw that book away. It's a flashpoint and legacy to the faith that I received from my mom to trust in Jesus. I get another book. The Truesdales. That's my dad's liberal Protestant family up there in Madison, right on the campus with the U- Washington, excuse me, University of Wisconsin. They weren't evangelical. In fact, when I told my love Billy Graham, they told me Billy Graham, this, that, and everything else. They did not love Billy Graham. Let's just put it that way with those grandparents, the liberal Protestants. And I still kept that book. Because it reminds me of my grandmother Esther, my dad's mom, who always was doing things for other people who couldn't do things to help them. And when I went through all the Truesdale stuff, there's, they, they, were, they were sponsoring kids with Compassion International in the 50s. They were sponsoring African Americans in the South in the 50s for education. Native Indians in reservations in the 50s. So they might not be evangelical like we are, but I'd rather see love in action than people tell me how right they are theologically on love and don't show it to anybody. So that book made the cut too. We all have our ephods. We all have, to, I got, you know, this text made me think about my 20 Bibles. I've got 20 Bibles in a bin that are my Bible since I've been saved. 34 years of me and Jesus in Bibles, photos in Bibles, business cards in Bible, children's photos in Bibles, then my kids being adults in Bibles. Like I've said before, this Bible doesn't have a lot of photos, but it's got, I voted. That was the recall, by the way. Um, it's, it's got a thing from my mom's last devotional. It's got, uh, but, you know, I showed this to you recently. It's got, uh, I forget whose wedding this was, but it was me and Jennifer. It's worth putting in the Bible. It had to be important. And then Clementine being dropped off at Awana's. My granddaughter, Juanas, two months ago in Florida, made the Bible. Not just the journal, but the Bible. And you know, I thought, like, would I ever give my Bibles away? Because I'm stuck with all the Bibles that came before me in my previous families. Probably not. They're kind of like the ephod. They're just reminders of God's faithfulness. 
They're reminders. They're kind of like the tassels of Jesus' robe when the woman of the flow of blood just grabbed his, grabbed his robe. They don't save anybody. They don't do anything like... But if they remind you of a legacy of faith, if they remind you of good things that direct you toward pressing into the Lord Jesus Christ, to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, leaning not under understanding, being on your knees, being humble, broken, and thinking of others, then they're good things. To me, the ephod's a good thing. I don't worship the ephod. The ephod doesn't raise me from the grave. But the ephod is something that reminds me that God loves his people and God cares. The God of the burning bush and the God of the burning Mount Sinai is God of the ephod. So when the robe comes out, they don't even have the Ark of the Covenant. Like, you think, like, like if you're going to do, do this thing, let's do the Ark of the Covenant. Let's have the, they don't even have the Ark of the Covenant. It's like God. The last priest of the household with the robe from the priesthood. The lowest moment. Well, you know what? I'm going to let this remind me of 70 priests being killed because of me, as people blame me for it. Or I'm going to let this robe remind me that God is faithful and the priesthood is, is, is the is to serve the Lord. And God is good and faithful to his people at all times and all things. David said, bring out the ephod. And said, let's seek the Lord. His faith was strengthened by something tangible, like the woman grabbing Jesus' robe. These things are important in our lives. We don't worship them, but they do, they do remind us who we do worship. And they strengthen our faith. Faith is the substance of things... Hopefully, they've been not yet seen. But there are things that remind us of God's faithfulness. Some of you still go to Calvary Costa Mesa, not because you want to sit under Charlotte Broderson, because you like that sanctuary. It reminds you of Pastor Chuck. Some of you maybe go there when no one's even there, and you walk in the sanctuary. Maybe you go there because it reminds you when you were in high school, and you appreciated those chapels suddenly so much more now than you did 15 years ago. Don't underestimate the ephod. So David went in the 600 men were with him, and they came to the brook Besor, where those stayed who were left behind. But David pursued he and his 400 men, for 200 stayed behind, who were too, so worried they could not cross the brook Besor. They're just, they're done, physically, emotionally, mentally. They're, they're just done. 200 guys like, I can't do it, we're done. Like the people that, you know, are running a marathon, they're just like, I can't do it. Verse 11, then they found an Egyptian in the field and brought him to David. They gave him bread, and he, and he ate, and they gave him drink, water to drink, and they gave him a piece of cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten everything, his strength came back to him, for he had eaten no bread nor drunk water for three days and three nights. So his strength was restored to him. Then David said to him, To whom do you belong and where are you from? And he said, I'm a young man from Egypt, servant of an Amalekite. And my master left me behind because three days ago I fell sick. We made an invasion of the southern area of the Chetherites in the territory which belongs to Judah in the southern area of Caleb. And we burned Ziglag with fire, the region of Judah. And David said to him, can you take me uh, down to this troop? So he said, swear to me by God that you will neither kill me nor deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this troop. And when he had brought him down, there they went, there they were, spread out over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil which they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. Then David attacked them from twilight until evening of the next day. It's a 24-hour battle. Not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who rode on camels and fled. So David recovered all that the Amalekites had carried away, and David rescued his two wives, and nothing of theirs was lacking, uh, neither, either small or great, son or daughter, or anything which they had taken from them. David recovered all. Then David took all the flock and herds and had driven before those other livestock and said, this is David's spoil. So they had the battle. The, the, the man led him to the way, the Egyptian... And they have the battle. They have total victory, all-out victory. They recover everything plus some. So they got everything back, and the bonus they got more than even was lost. It's all restored. And by the way, gosh, the Amalekites, I don't have time for it, but they're so ruthless. Some people just throw people under the bus. You know, people are, are commodities, People are not commodities. People are human beings created in the image of God. He used to leave the guy behind to die. It's so like Amalekites to be like that. There's a lot of people like that in the world. They, they, they don't care. They're just takers. And once you can't give and you have no value, they just cast you aside. We don't ever want to be those kind of people. We always value the humanity. And by the way, the Amalekites are having party of the year. They don't get to spend any of their booty. Isn't this classic? The Bible tells us the Lord catches the wicked in their own derision. Like he catches them in their own snare. Think about this. These guys 
acquired all this wealth. Let's just take Ziglag. They took everything that belonged to David. They robbed David safe. They took everything that belonged to David. Just think about that for a minute. These guys took everything that belonged to David, and yet David lost none of it. These guys, it's like having all this money in the bank and you don't know how to spend it. It's like having houses you can't live in. It's like having boats you can't go out to sea on. They had all this wealth and they didn't get to enjoy any of it. Any of it. It's classic. Aren't you glad we don't trust in earthly treasures? <laughs> However much wealth they had, it would never be enough. They didn't even know how to enjoy it. <laughs> Such Amalekites, man. This is so Amalekites. This is how they are. Prosperous Amalekites, they should have been wiped out by Saul anyways. We already saw that previously in this, chap- in this book. But really what's classic about this story is that God gave it all back to David, and then he gave David what wasn't even his. That's what God does for his people. It's never about the money. It's always about the heart. It's never about temporal wealth. It's always about the eternal kingdom. And yet again, we see this. In the same chapter, David is completely broken and has lost everything. And before you can say chapter 31, God's doubled him up. He's restored it and given him more. That's why we always trust in the Lord. And if God doesn't give you more, that's fine. Because you get, you'll get everything you need in this life. And he'll give us the blessings in the next one. But what a, what a story. Verse 21. Now David came to 200 men who were so weary they could not follow David, whom they'd also made to stay at the brook Besor. And so they went out to meet David and, and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near, the people who greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless men, see David still had men that were considered <laughs> wicked and worthless there, were under construction, especially those that work for you. Of those who went with David answered and said, because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered except for every man's wife and children that they may lead them away and depart. But David said, my brethren, you shall not do so with what the Lord has given us, who has preserved us and delivered us into our hands the truth that came against us. For who will, who will heed you in this manner? But as is his part who goes down to the battle, so shall his part be who stays by the supplies. They shall share alike. So it was from that day forward, he made it a statute and an ordinance for Israel to this day. Now, when David came to Ziglag, he sent some of the spoil to the elders of Judah, to his friends, saying, Here's a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. And to those who are in Bethel, to those who are in Ramoth of the south, those who are in Jatir, those who are in Aror, those who are in uh, Sifmoth, those who are in Eshtemoah, those who are in Rachel, those who are in the cities of the Jeheramalites, those who are in the cities of the Kenites, those who are in Hormah, those who are in Chorshan, those who are in Athok, those who are in Hebron, and to all the places where David himself and his men we're accustomed to rove. You gotta love David. Takers take, it's never enough, even when they've taken almost all your stuff. Givers give and keep on giving because they're always willing to keep on forgiving. And David is a giver, not a taker. Look what happens. It's all a test, WG, body of Christ. David strengthened himself in the Lord. David inquired of the Lord, and then David got blessed by the Lord. And as soon as he gets the blessing, and there's division over money, because money generally divides people, especially when there's more of it. He says, look, you knuckleheads. He didn't say that, but he's like, look, guys, the Lord gave us this victory. Why are you trying to take what the Lord gave us? Those who stay get equal with those who went. It's that simple. Now, there's a whole study on this one, but obviously, in David's army, it's equal. So those who risked their life in hand-to-hand combat, they're no greater than those who man the supply lines because you can't win a war without good supply lines. Trust me. It's on display right now. You've got to have the supply lines to win a war. There's no victory in the front if you're not supporting from the back. It's, it's human conflict history. So David says, listen, man, everybody's important. Any quarterback would tell you he's nothing without a good offensive line, right? What was the Chargers' first pick? I'm going football here. He's an offensive lineman. You got to protect Justin Herbert, their quarterback. I don't know any of the linemen's name for the Los Angeles Chargers. But you can be sure their quarterback knows their name. We all have a role. In 1 Corinthians 12, we're told that everybody has a role in the body of Christ. And you can't say, oh, I'm more important than the nose or the feet or the hands, or I'm insignificant, I, nothing matters. And Like, you think you're part of the body that no one cares about. Look, that little left toe, the far left toe, for a left-footed Your little toes are very important. That's why kings cut off toes, right? Cut off a thumb, doesn't seem that important, but try life without a thumb. 
I don't want to to you, but like, you know what I'm saying? Like everybody's important in the kingdom and we all share in the things that God has for us. So super important to hold that and keep that in mind. When people start fighting for how much more they can get, we just help people keep their wits and go like, look, everybody's important here. And in this case, there's uh, equity and equality. Then but look where David goes one up. This, these are the things that makes David just so amazing. Like, we're going to see the, the things about David that we don't like in 2 Samuel. We're going to see what we don't like. But he takes the extra wealth, and what does he do? He gives it away. Did you catch that? He gave it away. David gave away the increase. He was broke at the start of the day. He's rich at the end of the day. And the next day he wakes up and he gives it all away. That's how you want to live your life. It all belongs to the Lord. Like Paul. I've been high. I've been low. I've had a lot. I've had nothing. But my God is able to supply all your needs according to his riches and glory. We get this all the time because this is my heart. So bountifully, be a giver, not a taker. Trust God. For all the madness going on this planet with inflation, stagflation, recession, just know None of the wealth is leaving the planet. And half the wealth is perceived wealth, right? There's no intrinsic value to cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin. People just perceive it as wealth. You can't live in it. You can't eat it. But it's perceived wealth. So all the wealth you can worry about on planet Earth that someone can take, don't worry about it. It all gets left behind. And God can take from them and give to you. And he can give to you so you'll give to them. Understand? We need to be at peace with finances. Hey, listen, at always, but in, in, in spring of 2022, you need to be at peace with finances over who your provider is and that he's got your back. Chapter 31 is short. It's quick. We'll get it. Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Goboa. Then the Philistines followed hard after Saul and his sons, and the Philistines killed Jonathan, Abinadab, Malkishua, Saul's sons. The battle became fierce against Saul. The archers hit him, and he was severely wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised men come and thrust me through and abuse me. But his armor bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid, and therefore Saul took a sword and fell on it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul and his three sons, his armor bearer, and all of his men died together that same day. I just have to point out verse 6 is a tragic verse. In this book, chapter 31, verse 6. So Saul, his three sons, his armor bearer, and all of his men died together that same day. What a sad verse that is. Verse 7. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those who were on the other side of the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they forsook the cities and fled. And the Philistines came and dwelt in them. So it happened the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain that they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. They cut off his head, stripped off his armor, and sent word throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim it in the temple of their idols and among their people. It's always a spiritual battle. Then they put his armor in the temple of the Ashtoreths, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshean. Now, when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and traveled all night, took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshean, and there they came to Jabesh and burned them there. Then they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree at Jabesh and fasted seven days." For all that Saul has dominated this book and been such a lead role in our storyline here, it's just such a, there it is, 13 verses. It happened fast, right? Like, people like him can be so prominent. They can be in the news. You see their face every day on every news outlet, and then suddenly they're just gone. They're nobody. They ran your world. They affected your personal life on all kinds of levels and now you don't even know where are they? And they step into eternity and they're gone. And that's the way it is. That's all he said. You can never take up the spear of Saul against Saul because you'll become Saul. You want Saul to leave. He's going to leave anyways, but you can't make him define who you are in life, the Sauls of the world. In the end, they go. And unfortunately, when they go, they often take others with them with their bad decisions, whether they're going from the, the workplace or from the family or whatever. 
But verse 6, they're gone. But his position was important. He was the king of Israel, the first king of Israel. And these men of Jabesh-Gilead, boy, give these guys props. These guys, they were not going to let the king of Israel's body decapitated hang on a wall of the Philistines. That was unacceptable. And you think, he's already dead. He's decapitated. Like, why risk your life? But sometimes, like, you're just compelled so strongly to do something that you know is right, and you're going to do it. And it may not seem like a big deal, but, like, quite often that's where greatness is found, when you'll do something that you feel compelled to do that no one else feels compelled to do, just because deep in your heart's conviction, and you just know what's the right thing for you to do and what you're called to do. These men... We can look at the story of Jabesh Gilead and these men as saying, these men are foolish. Or we can look at these men and say, these men are awesome men. They're men of great faith. God sees them as men of great faith. Sometimes we're called to do things that seem very, that require courage and faith in these things. And people are like, for what? But we got to do what the Lord's called us to do. God knows the heart. And we need to do what we feel compelled and convicted to do. The convictions of our heart as led by the Lord. There's risk in everything. And you know what? And aren't you thankful some people wake up in Israel on that day and they, will, they refuse to accept the decapitated body of Saul hanging from the wall, the enemies? No. That is unacceptable. Of course, they had to cremate him lest the body be buried, uh, un- dug up. So they cremated him. And on that note, just know this, from the dust we came, will the dust return? Pastor Chuck said it best so many years ago concerning cremation. In 35 minutes, what will happen in 35 years? But either way, God says, from the dust you came, and the dust you'll return. And that's that. But I like this, these men of valor going for it right here. It's a cool little story. It's there for a reason. And so we've concluded First Samuel.